out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the rock journalist and novelist, Nick Kent, who has just brought out a book called The Unstable Boys that has just been published on hardback by Constable Publishing. So it has just appeared on your bookshelves, but obviously um, Nick goes back to the early 70s writing for such publication as Friends and also for the NME back in the 70s and 80s and has brought out several books as well. Anyway, this is the interview and um, as usual, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the very exciting subject that was, um, yes, how long it took to start bringing this book publication together um, from fruition onwards. Anyway, look, you're going to get the gist from this interview. This is it. Nick, tell us more. Tell us now. It came as early as the beginning of the 90s. I, I was interested in writing a book of fiction after my first book, The Dark Stuff, which was, a, a, I guess you've read it or you've seen, which was like a, a, a collection of, of profiles of musicians. Um, yeah, and in fact, that, that, I wanted a, a book of fiction to be my second book. I'd, I was not someone who uh, wrote fiction as a hobby. This would be my... This was going to be my first attempt at fiction, really. I'm, I'm not someone who sits around after hours and writes, um, excuse me, and writes uh, short stories, say. Mm. So um, this was a new departure for me. Um, my wife had told me a story about a, a character called Vince Taylor, you may have heard of. David Bowie used him as the mostly the inspiration for Ziggy Stardust. He was a guy from the early, late 50s, early 60s, probably England's first dangerous rock star and the first really talented rock uh, front man. And, uh, but he went crazy in the mid-60s and uh, ended up here in France where he was basically penniless and uh, homeless most of the time. And, seemed to be, certainly in the 70s, was seeking out anyone, like a fan club presidents, ex-fan club presidents, anyone that had been to see him live, he would turn up at their doorstep and say, you know, I'm homeless and penniless. I'm, I was once your hero. Can I stay at your house? I mean, there, there are other examples of this situation. Um, but the Vince Taylor one really was, rang home to me and I thought man this this would be a great um well I thought I thought initially it would be it would make a really good uh, screenplay for a film the idea of a kind of broken down rock star or I mean I mean there were various versions that I could do I could do it as a kind of Sid Barrett kind of character who was a genuinely talented individual but who was mad mm -hmm. and that would be more like um Initially, I saw it more as a kind of uh, Harold Pinter does Spinal Tap. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you know what the Harold Pinter plays of the 60s, like The Caretaker. Yes. Um, where there are two mad, two very odd people talking at cross purposes. 
and it, it's basically that it's this thing of 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 disconnect at the same time that there's this desperate need for these but this but uh, they're, they're in needy conditions but they are both they're both in their way mad that was the original premise and then i realized pretty quickly that this would that would if i just use that situation it would be like a one act play mm. or a short story it couldn't it wouldn't work for a book so i started looking around for a wider sort of like basically a different um well, two or three different plot lines, two, two or three different characters that could intersect into this story. And um, slowly but surely, I came up with uh, the form of this book. Uh, but you must, you must have had trouble trying to sort of whittle down that, that thing. Because I've been, I do the show called The C86 Show, which was that NME cassette. And I started going through all these interviews of 80s indie bands and, and bands before that and bands since then. But, but um, I didn't realise there were hundreds, quite, even though I was an indie kid. And, and the thing is, each story is kind of fascinating in itself. And, and actually, you just go away thinking, God, that's, that's an incredible story, story. You know, like last night, I was doing an interview as a woman who was in a uh, LA band the Pandoras and and you know her first band she was talking about the lead singer that the musical style changed depending on who who her boyfriend was at the time so he, he was like the first boyfriend was in the pop so the band was pop and then he she got into a heavy metal guy and he she, the band became heavy metal and then he became the manager and then he sacked all the band and then she died of some brain hemorrhage and then the second band she started with the Muffs and and then you know that ends yeah, badly. Right. <laughs> and, and you know what I mean. Each story is kind of filled with kind of disasters and characters and drugs and problems, and and you know dying lead singer. So you must have over your years gone. God, which character? There's this amazing story from this band. You know, because there was the woman from ABBA who had a stalker, but then she be, he becomes her boyfriend. And you think, how the yeah. hell did that happen? You know, they there was like it's un, un, <laughs> almost unreal that you would think. Yeah, I don't know. This could. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, the thing is that musicians, when they do something very, very well, and they break into the mainstream, as opposed to being a cult act, um, then you open up a kind of a a situation which, at its most extreme, was the situation the Manson family felt about the Beatles, specifically the Beatles' White Album where musicians become gurus. In that situation, it was, it was the Beatles becoming gurus to a bunch of very damaged people, right? Mm. I mean, they're you. Um, but this, this kind of music and those kind of people uh, become role models, particularly to when, when you're young, when you're a teenager, and you're going through those awkward years when your libido starts to kick in, and uh, obviously, you're you're moving away from your parents' values, which you which have been have been uh, you know placed upon you like a weight, and and you you and it's hard, and you're looking for role models, and musicians particularly are ideal role models, whether it's Liam Gallagher or uh, John, you know, I mean, or Bob Dylan, or you know, who, I mean. You know, if, if you're young and sensitive and a bit unsure of your sexual identity, then 
someone like Sid Barrett or uh, Nick Drake say, you're going to fall in love. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be like your dream lover. Mm-hmm. You can go on the, I mean, if you know nothing about, you can go on the net, you can hear their music, which is extraordinarily intimate music, right? Far more intimate than, say, ACDC. <laughs> to give you an example, you know, I, I really like ACDC, but you, you get my point, surely. Um, and you can you can sink into that into that. You can listen to Nick Drake if you're a 16 year old girl who's still a virgin and is still a bit frightened of boys. And there are a lot of girls out there like that. And there are a lot of boys like that there like that. Okay, um, you can listen to Nick Drake's music and you can fall in love with Nick Drake mm. because that guy will never let you down. Yes, you, you know, you I mean, he's dead. <laughs> He's got this perfect body of work. It's not even like with Bob Dylan, where there's these bad albums. It's like, well, if you fall in love with Bob Dylan, you eventually you're going to hear some of his Christmas mediocre album. songs. I mean, yeah, you know, there's a there's quite a long list of those. Um, whereas Nick Drake is a perfectly for and with Barrett in an in an odd way, it's a perfectly formed oeuvre. Yeah, and you can sink into that and. This creates very, very intense relationships between the listener and the musician. And they're more intense in many ways than the actual friendships that they have with real people. And um, when people, I mean, and a lot of these people who, who live, on their, live on their own and, you know, live solitary lives, they relate to musicians far more than other people in their office or whatever. And so this very one-sided relationship, because of course the musician doesn't even know these people. I mean, you know, when I spent a couple of days with Neil Young, when he went out, people would walk up to him at five minutes, every five minutes, and tell him how his music had changed their lives. This was here in France as well, not in not in San Francisco, where I imagine it happens every one minute. <laughs> okay. Yes. And and you know he he would he behaved pleasantly about it, but I could see he was getting more and more pissed off. And and he, and and I was saying to him, you know, it must be you know, it must be nice to be so well loved. And he said, it's just a pain in the fucking ass. <laughs> you know, I don't know these people. You know, obviously, obviously, there's, you know, I, obviously it, it affects me in a positive way when they say that my music changed their lives for the better. Mm. That's, you know, that is a compliment that anyone can react to positively. But it's the intensity with it, with it or the fact that my, you know, that, that, that they feel that uh, I have some kind of... Um, duty to make the nation feel good it's like when trump would where you know in the middle of the trump or at the end of the trump um years everyone was waiting for bob dylan to write a, an anti-trump song and he didn't he wrote a song about the john kennedy assassination <laughs> 50 years before, 60 years before and which was the which is synonymous of how bloody-minded bob dylan can be but he, what he's saying to the, his audience is, I'm not your boy. 
Yes. I'm not your I'm not your court jester. I'm not your fucking house troubadour. I write about what I want. And if you want to listen to what I'm writing about, fair enough. But I'm not going to write about Donald Trump or Jeffrey Epstein or whatever's happening in the news. I am not a topic. I'm, I'm, I've given up topicality as a, as a, a theme for my songs many, many years ago. Yes. So it's really, uh, and, and when you do that, generally you, um, well, you become a cult artist. But it's interesting. Look at something like Tom, Tom Waits and Leonard Cohen. Are they mainstream? Some of their songs, well, Hallelujah is a mainstream song, but how many people really know what the lyrics mean? Yeah, all, the all those people who watch that Disney film, how many people know? Like, I mean, they know the lyrics are good because it's like, whoa, it's, you know, it sounds like poetry. But what does the song actually mean? That, you know, that's, that's, what, we're, that's what we're talking. I mean, that's, that's the relationship I'm interested in. I, I was never just interested in what's it like being a hugely famous and influential person. I was interested in that. Mostly it isolates people. Mm. It, it, what it does to the people that I met, and I've met a number of people that were big, iconic, and hugely influential stars, I guess, icons. Or I mean, I don't like that word icon, but stars, okay? Um, and as human beings, there wasn't that much going on in their lives. If, you know, people would ask me, well, what's, what's David Bowie really like? What's Iggy Pop really like? What's Mick Jagger really like? And I would say, well, think about a man sitting in a, a, in a nice room, reading a book and listening to a music like Smokey Robinson and the Miracles or an old Little Richard record or an old blues record. That's David Bowie. That's mm -hmm. who he really is. He's not running around having orgies with 20 hermaphrodites like <laughs> like his most you know deluded fans would have thought he's just a guy reading a book like you or me on our off time okay or maybe he's watching a thing on the telly or whatever yes i mean he, he's just another fucking human being but he set off this chain reaction with his work with his accomplishments which makes him which which makes him stand out in society but um, for, as a writer, I was equally interested in the fan club presidents living, <laughs> you know, living these kind of nine to five existences, living with their mothers. I met a guy, uh, I, I went to interview a guy when I was doing Jerry Lee Lewis. I'd done Jerry Lee Lewis, who you know is a very volatile individual, yes. um, somewhat dangerous to be around. <laughs> and I went to interview his fan club president back in the 80s. And this guy was, was a 40-year-old guy living with his mother. For the first 10 minutes of our interview, he had a terrible argument with his mother because she bought the wrong biscuits, right? <laughs> so she, this, we're talking about someone who was the polar opposite of Jerry Lee Lewis. Yes. And yet he, was, he had devoted his life to this character. So to me, that... That relationship, or lack of the relationship, I guess, um, 
was fascinating. I mean, that the fine complaisance was as fascinating as Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, what does this guy do with his life? <laughs> you know, what the hell yeah. does this guy do with his life? I mean, you know, so to me, the whole, you know, the whole, um, the whole landscape of rock from the, from the, uh, the people performing, the managers, the promoter even, um, but particularly the fans. The fans. Uh, Oh, that, 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 that whole, that, the, that, that to me was the big picture of what I was writing about. It wasn't just the effects of fame on certain individuals. Yes, because, because luckily, I mean, it wasn't lucky for Sid Barrett, because obviously he, you know, was very damaged, a bit like Peter Green and also people like, um, yeah, Brian, uh, Brian Wilson as well. But the, but the interesting thing is, and it, it kind of, it's lucky in a way that Mick Rock managed to take so many great pictures of Sid. So we've got that beautiful image. But when you see the image of him a few years later in Cambridge, looking a bit sort of like bald, and he doesn't look sort of beautifully gaunt and gorgeous anymore. He just looks a bit like a podgy little man who lives with his mum. He probably did. Yeah. But then, but then as the fan, we become obsessed. And I didn't hit the obsession with the sex with Sex Pistols because I was too young, but you get Johnny Lydon now who, you know, loves Donald Trump. And then you get Morrissey, who I did love, um, who then sort of goes off on one and he seems to sort of worship Nigel, not worship, but he starts to promote, you know, Brexit and, and Nigel Farage. And that for a fan like myself, you just went, oh my God, you meant so much to me. And now you've just spoiled it. So when, when you see those characters, and you probably, you have met both of them, haven't you? Um, yeah. That must have been a little bit like, did you see that coming? You think? Yeah. Yes. Did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, not less with Morrissey, I have to say, because I mean, Morrissey, I genuinely liked. I knew Morrissey during the Smiths. I, I, I have not had, any social contact with him hold on i i yeah i did one interview with him uh, when he'd be he'd become a solo artist yeah that would have been 1989 um let's start with john lyden now john lyden was uh, as you of course know uh, he made his bones career-wise as johnny rotten and uh, I can relate to him in the sense that I, too, as a journalist, uh, well, I, as a journalist, I should say, went the same route that he did, which is to say that I realized very quickly that in order to get the attention of a teenage audience, you've got to go to extremes. If you want to say something intelligent, but you want to be heard, and you're going for a, t a t like people from the early, young as the age of 12 to the age of, say, 21, which was the, the enemy's market audience and was also the Sex Pistols market audience, right? Then you've got to go to extremes. And both Leiden and I are um, proof that going to extremes gets results. But here's the twist. Here's the, here's the rub, should we say they may not be the kind of results that you originally set out to attain. You will be noticed mm. because you're doing something extreme. But then you'll become, oh, yeah, that guy that does extreme 
boom, you know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's like, you know, like he's screaming Lord such. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but, we, but we can't take this guy seriously, you know. And then in 1978, after the Sex Pistols, John Lydon's true nature, his music, you know, his, his real musical tastes came to the fore. And he wanted, see, John Lydon was like, he liked the, the, that John Peel type music, which the rest of the Sex Pistols could not abide. They couldn't stand it. German rock, they, they, no, they didn't like reggae. They, anything that Lydon liked <laughs> musically, they, the rest of the group didn't like at all. They were basic classic hard rock, 60s who small faces rock fans. And that's what they wanted to do. So there was going to be no development in that group because the musical chemistry was so fucking limited. Um, anyway, Lydon, does, Lydon sets up public image which his, his version of art rock, let's, let's be honest. At the same time, he picks the wrong guys, just socially to work with, because those guys are the laziest. Well, Keith Levine was about the laziest man <laughs> in the British Isles um, and wouldn't turn up to any gigs. So, I mean, there was no stamina. If you're going to start a project, at least start it with a certain <laughs> amount of of actual physical stamina, even if it's not inspired. <laughs> physical stamina is required when you're starting a group. You have to go out and perform. They did. Levine didn't want to do that. Leiden didn't want to do that. Um, I'm sure maybe you, you're you a big fan of those pill, the, the, those three, the two, uh, no, me neither. No. Um, I find them overrated. John Leiden... You see, he wanted to be tubby. He wanted to do that that thing of becoming a serious artist, but he never bothered to sit down and learn a fucking musical instrument. If you're going to express yourself through music, whoever you are, learn a musical instrument. There are two people: Captain Beefheart, Marky e. Smith, who managed to have long and illustrious careers. Where, whilst not being able to play a musical instrument at all. Captain Beefheart could make sounds out of a saxophone and he could put his fingers on a piano keyboard, but he couldn't make music. He couldn't create a melody of any sort <laughs> from a musical instrument. For some, but through the power of his... I mean, he was a real artist. I, he was the second person I ever interviewed. And I also went on tour with the Magic Band when I was 20, which was, now that was something, yes. that was something to experience. Because I've done, I've done interviews with John Drumbo French and, <clears throat> one, and the guitarist who's still alive in New York. And, it, and John Drumbo French, he, did, he does sound quite damaged still. Because I said, what would you say to your 18-year-old self? And he said, don't join Captain Beefheart's band. Go for Crosby, Stills and Nash you would have been yeah. happier and wealthier and you wouldn't... Well, I don't know if he'd been happier in Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, because those e those guys were tearing each other apart every night with their egos. So it was a different thing. Captain Beefheart, oh, my God, man, he was something else. Uh, he, he really... I mean, that, that was really the first time that I ever did rock journalism, in, like in the way that you did it in the 70s, which was to go out on tour. 
Now rock journalists be just sitting down and doing an interview like we're doing now, except you've got 20 minutes instead of maybe an hour or however long you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then, you were on the bus, literally, with the, with the rest. Of, you know, I went to Brighton with them, and that was an incredible trip. I mean, it was just amazing. The bus kept breaking down. We ended up in a, in a transport cafe, like halfway between London and Brighton. And they were all dressed like, I mean, in a, in a kind of versions of the cover of Trout Mask Replica. I mean, you know, this was 1972 when people were used to long hair and people with beards, but they weren't used to people coming in with, you know, polka dot underpants on their head which the drummer was literally wearing his underpants on his head uh and 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 a a pair of like long johns and a pair of you know like and i think one of them was barefoot and beefheart was dressed up uh he had if you know the album the spotlight kid you Mm -hmm. know that album well you're on the cover he's dressed like a conjurer like a like a magician like a a las vegas magician like with a you know, like a, a tuxedo, and a, and he looks like he's about to bring a dove out of his, you know, his sleeve. Yeah. He's got a, and he's, he's got a cape. He's got a fucking cape. Well, he was dressed like that all the time. He comes into this place, right? We're in a fucking transport cafe in 1972 in bourgeois England, and I'm sitting there. I'm 20 years old. I've never taken LSD before. Half the band I discover years later are on PCP, okay? I don't know if you know what PCP is, because yeah. the drug never, never really reached Eng- uh, England unless it was in the hands of Captain Beefheart, magic band members. But it's, you know, but you're completely, you know, I mean, you're just like this. Conversation is very, very hard. Beefheart is not on PCP, and he's talking 10 to the dozen, okay? You can't shut this man up, right? One minute he's asking you, like, <laughs> it's just these incredible conversations where he's play, he was playing saxophone, on alto saxophone on stage. And so I said, well, who are your influences on as a saxophone? Like Albert Eiler, you know, I, I was dropping Ornette Coleman. I was kind of... Being a 20-year-old, I was dropping names of people. I'd never even heard their records, but, you know, trying to keep up with him and show him that I was, you know, a music lover. And he says, well, listen, no man can play the scales like the armadillo, okay? Okay? Now tell me, Nick, now tell me, Nick, who do you think is the most beautiful animal that you would like to have a relationship with? I'm thinking of the primates, yeah? I mean, primates are better than human beings. My God, the mandrill. I'd love to marry a mandrill. And he wasn't putting me on. This was, this was how he thought. And the other guys would just sit, <laughs> they were just <laughs> like this. And then finally, like we have, you know, the usual transport cafe meal no vegetarian options at 1972 <laughs> and the the waitress it was like this 60 year old kind of irene handle type you know like hello dear hello darling yeah. she comes up and gives beefheart who she sees as being the the ringleader in this, this fucking at this table of freaks <laughs> the bill 
like you know a little you know like and and B five because he's heard that Picasso used to uh, when when he was given a, a bill at a, at a restaurant would simply do a doodle on the he wouldn't pay he'd do a doodle on the on the bill itself hand it back to the waitress and say listen I'm Pablo Picasso in ten years this doodle will be worth ten thousand pounds or you know, like yeah, yeah. king's ransom. So I'm doing you a big favor. So he get free meal. Beefheart tried to pull this exact thing. Okay, he did a doodle on his guy, handed it back to him, and said, "In ten years' time, <laughs> that piece of paper is going to be worth, you know, a, you know, like a hundred quid or whatever." And he, and of course, you know, fifty years later, he's right. <laughs> you have a piece of paper with like a little squiggle on it by Captain Beefheart. You probably can sell it for hundred quid on eBay. <laughs> so the man was a visionary, but at the same time, what a bullshitter! I mean, you know what I mean. This this thing between bullshit and ge- and, and genius is so. It's a very fine line. Very fine line. Orson, ask Orson Welles. Yes, you can find him. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So with with that, because um, Johnny Rotten or Johnny Lydon and Roger. Yeah, but John, I'm sorry to get back to the point. The Beefheart and Mark Smith somehow managed to do it. John Lydon didn't uh, because, A, he didn't develop musical instincts. He always had to rely on other people to, for all the music. He, he may have had ideas, but he could not. But the, the musicians were always going to rule the day with him or whoever they were because he couldn't express. I mean, he could say it verbally. Yeah, but when you're in a studio and you can't play a musical instrument and you can't work the board and you you know you're at the mercy of the producer, the engineer, and your fellow musicians. And when I hear John Lydon's music, I hear someone increasingly at the mercy of his co-workers. Yes. So and then he realizes, well, I better double back to the shock thing, right? And so, I mean, if you look at his career, what's he, what's he do? Well, he starts with adverts, isn't it? Wasn't that the first thing? Doing, doing awesome. TV adverts. And then he does reality television. I mean, you know, it's the, he's going, he, he, you know, there are two roads. There's the one where you just do anything for money and, and um, not just money, but what's the word? You know, exposure. You know, I've got to have exposure. Why? If you don't have anything new to say, why expose yourself all the time? It's like, it's like you know, a guy trying to expose himself in a in a woman's toilet. It, it's it, it's a, it, it always comes a sickness. You know what I mean? Yes. And um, and so he reaches this point where, first of all, John Lydon at the age of eighteen was a, a an old curmudgeon, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that really is his. That's the kind of pivotal part of his person he's the guy that is whining he's the whining guy right <laughs> he's the intelligent whiner like oh, i don't like this this is shit no no oh that food's cold yeah oh, oh, fuck off here dave come now what dave you bloody dick dave come here he has to be he's the little guy that has to be like he's the edward g robinson right with his little with his little pack who are a lot tougher and he orders them around because when he was a little kid, he was the guy that was bullied in the playground, and now he and now he's the one in charge. 
So he has that side to him. And that side is a bully. And Donald Trump is a bully. And Donald Trump likes to shock. John Lydon likes to shock. I think John Lydon, I know the guy is intelligent enough. But he's also, you know, he has a terrible drinking problem. And people who are, there's a kind of self-loathing. When, I, when mm. I see him, and I see him very rarely, I, I really don't like to watch John Lydon these days. It's a kind of ugly thing to see. But I saw him doing a, a punk convention, and there was one of the guys, well, the, the only guy that's left from the Ramones who's still alive, and there's Henry Rollins, and there was the girl from L, uh, L7, and he was there, and he was drunk. Everyone else was, was sober. And, you know, uh, pretty articulate. And he was just, A, he was just lying like Trump. He was just telling lies all the time. As far as he was concerned, he was the only punk in this particular crowd. So he was insulting everybody. And the others who respected Leiden when he was a sex pistol were just looking at him like, what an arsehole you are. Yes. I have, uh, yeah. I, I, have... I, 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 I mean, and I think now, Almost everyone, apart from, you know, the real kind of eight-neck Sweeney fans of the Sex Pistols, the, the shaved-headed guys who were also drinking way to excess, everyone is going, oh, John Lydon, yeah, yeah. But I think it started years ago. It started when he went to the adverts. It started when he, when he realised that art rock, he, he couldn't make a living at art rock. Yeah. yeah. The guy wanted a comfortable life and he wanted to go on talk shows and uh, he, he you know he's, he wasn't Dam damo suzuki was he no he wasn't you don't see damo suzuki on the jonathan ross show <laughs> making outrageous pronouncements um you know he he made his choice he you know like uh, in 1975 vivian westwood and mark mclaren made a t-shirt saying you're going to wake up one morning and realize which side of the bed you're lying on. And on, you know, on one side was a list of people that, like Tony Blackburn, who were just complete sellouts, you know, yeah. Jimmy Savile or whatever. And on the other side, there was um, the Sex Pistols, obviously, and uh, the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the people that uh, McLaren and Westwood uh, approved of. Well, Leiden started out on one side of the bed <laughs> and now he's on the other. Yes. I mean, you know, but the fact is also, you know, um, to be banal about it, people change. But Leiden hasn't changed that much. He's just he's just running out of options to shock people with. Yes. This is the true. only way you can shock people now is to say, well, in, eight, in the 80s, if you said that Margaret Thatcher was great, that was shocking. And, you know, when the... Um, in, when the Saudi Arabia, when the, the Saudi Arabia, when Assad, if, like if you said that the guy Assad was uh, a great bloke, you were guaranteed to, you know, that was that was going to be shocking. I mean, so people saying Trump was a, that that writer. Yeah, I don't know the guy, the Welbeck, the French writer called Welbeck, right. second name. He's very Iggy Pop did a couple of records with him. Um, He's very popular here in France. He did a, an op-ed piece a couple of years ago about why I think Trump is a good president. And it was a piece of shit. 
I mean, this is a good writer. Welbeck's a good writer, unlike Leiden, who's not. I, I don't see any talent in Leiden, and I haven't seen it in, for years and years. Um, but Welbeck's a good writer. But he was just playing that shock card. It's like, it's like the Julie Birchall card. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> boom. It's like, you know, how, how, how do I get people reading me? Well, I'll write something outrageous about something they really hate. And I'll say how good it is. And they'll read it just to hate me. But that's enough. As long as I'm being read, as long as I'm getting exposure. Mm-hmm. I don't give a fuck about exposure. Yes. I mean, well, I really don't. I mean, I want my book, I want this book to be exposed. But I'm a 69-year-old man. I don't want to go on podcasts and like give my views about Brexit or whatever. Because, I mean, I don't have, I mean, I'm obviously anti-Brexit, but I'm not an expert. You know, sure, if you want sure. to talk to me about music of certain of certain genres of music and certain musicians then i have expertise on that you want to talk to me about writing writing non-fiction or fiction i have a certain expertise at that but i don't have any expertise i don't understand why anyone talks about politics any musician unless there's something really pressing to talk about and I don't understand why Morrissey would get involved in all this stuff at all. But uh, Yes, because I, I suppose just briefly, I mean, Johnny Lydon and Roger Daltrey both play that working with working class, and I'm from yeah. a working class background, but it doesn't mean you're going to play to that kind of cliche. You think, well, actually, that's fine. But there was a lot of working class people who were fine, and there's some who are just really awkward, difficult, bitter people. And you think, well, I don't... There is a choice you can make. So... I can imagine Roger Daltrey and Johnny Lydon being like that, but Morrissey was a slightly different one because of kind of having read his book and being a bit kind of obsessed with him in the 80s, then realising that actually, how did you go from this kind of really well-read, well-thought-out, watching those interviews of him in the early 80s and mid-80s, to sort of this character who just seems to almost be playing that same, you can't seriously be thinking that. But that's the, that's the confusion, confusing thing with Morrissey, I guess. Well, he was always a very, you know, strange young man. I mean, he was a strange guy. I mean, uh, he would, when he was in the Smiths, he, he was someone who'd spent so much time on his own. I could relate to this because I'd, I'd, I'm an only child. And, um, you know, he... After about 45 minutes, whoever he was in company with, whether it was the other Smiths or whatever, he'd have to, um, he'd have to disappear. They'd, they'd be recording a track and Morrissey suddenly just wouldn't be there. And he was either going out for a walk or he'd gone back to his hotel or whatever. But he was a very strange guy. Um, I don't know where this... This kind of nationalist, I mean, it, I, I just don't know where it came from because he lived so much in foreign countries, apparently. Yes. He lived in Italy for a while. See, I can't say anything about this. I don't want to make public pronouncements about anything like that because I am a foreigner. I live in a foreign country and have done for the past 32 years. So I'm no better than 
like any other foreigner, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't see myself that way. And so when someone like Morrissey, who is living in Los Angeles or um, Italy, spent a bit of time in France, apparently, if you're a foreigner, how can you knock other foreigners, particularly people who are suffering? And, and you have to remember that Morrissey's early audience people were people that related to, uh, I mean, the Smith's audience was vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. It wasn't ACDC's audience. I yeah. keep saying ACDC, but I'm just using <laughs> them as an example. I, I actually like ACDC music in reasonable doses a lot. But, I mean, you, you understand that there are different audiences yes. in rock. And the Smith audience was with a very vulnerable. They related to Morrissey's vulnerability and his fragility in the same way that, uh, you know, someone relates to uh, Henry Rollins's strength, say, well, you, know, you know what I mean? Yes. And uh, so for him to turn, a, turn on those people, a bit whether they were foreign, you know, the, the, the foreign element. And for him to, to, as he did in the 90s, to embrace skinheaddom. And basically, he was always being filmed, suddenly he was being filmed with these thugs. And then he got into boxing, I remember, for a while. And he yeah. was, you know, every, everywhere, he suddenly had this guy who looked like a real thug as his kind of mind become boyfriend. And I saw then, that he, oh, okay, there's, the, the Morrissey that I knew was someone that was, um, and we've got to be careful here, who was very uncomfortable with being a homosexual. I, I mean, I can't put it any other way. He was, it, the subject of homosexuality in general was something that you didn't talk about with him. And you were told by his minder and his, and his manager beforehand. You don't, the H word, the G word, gay, you don't mention it. He will just walk out of the room. And that's when my relationship with Morrissey broke because I finally asked him. I said, you know, it's sort of the last time I, I actually was in a room with him. I was doing an interview with him and he just, and he was, he put out the first solo album, which was what, Viva Hate? And he was making the second album and he just put out this single Ouija board, Ouija board, which is really bad. And it was mm -hmm. the first time. And I, and I remember being fairly blunt with him and saying, listen, this isn't good enough. As a Smiths fan, you know, your first solo album, every day, every day is like Sunday. And most of it, I thought that was good. Yeah. Um, it's not quite as good as, I mean, it wasn't as good as The Queen is Dead, but I thought it was better than Strange Ways, frankly. Um, I'm not a fan of Strange Ways. I felt that that's when you hear the group breaking up mm -hmm. on that album. Johnny Marr is not bringing anything fresh to the, uh, you know, um, to the, uh, to the, uh, the job at hand. Um, Anyway, Morrissey had did, he was at that time, it was in a recording studio. He was recording a track called Piccadilly Polare. And mm -hmm. then he went, and Polare is a, a kind of Kenneth Williams era of gay thing for, it's, it's gay speak from the 60s, you know, Joe Orton 
era, gay speak. And I didn't know what the word meant. And so Morrissey said, well, do you know what Polari means? And he went and he went into this long explanation of what Polari meant. And then he said, um, of course, when I was uh, when I was 12 years old, I used to follow gay prostitutes around. And of course, like he just said this completely out of the blue. I mean, you know, I I had not mentioned the word homosexual or gay at all because I you know I was being a good boy, um, but I you know he I wasn't going to let this opportunity drop. Okay, <laughs> so I said I remember exactly what I said to him. I said, "You write a lot about the gay the homosexual experience, handsome devil." Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's like, you know, slap me on the patio. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, but you don't talk about your own whether you are gay or not. You know, would you like to uh, address this subject? And he was completely kind of sidewinded because before that, for ten minutes, he talked about following these male prostitutes around and how obsessed he was with these guys and wondering what they were like and stuff. But then, uh, but then I said, well, are you gay? I mean, is it, I mean, are you actually sort of coming out here? Um, oh no, no, no. Well, you know, I write for both sexes and, and, you know, men and, and I've always been attracted men, certain men and certain women. It was, you know, the, it was that cop out thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, from that point on, yeah, we didn't, we didn't get up. <laughs> uh, he turned against me. He turned against me at that point. It was like you know, you you have you have uttered the unutterable. Yeah. Um. So I think there's a very deep seated thing there, and I think he he basically became far more comfortable with his sexual nature. Certainly by the time of Vauxhall and I, by 1994. I remember I had my first book out, and he was <clears throat> he was promoting Vauxhall and I, which is one of his best solo albums. And he and it was clear that he he we had a boyfriend, and you know he was he was talking about it in rather guarded terms, and um, he became someone different over. I, I remember seeing an interview with him. And he had all those Mexican fans when he was living in, in America and he had yes. all these Mexican fans. And he, was, he did a talk show and he had all these fans in the audience. And it was almost Trump-like, the way that he was giving sort of eye contact signals to his audience. I mean, the, the, the guy interview, interviewing him was a total psychophant. So, <laughs> you know, so he didn't have anything to worry about. But the way that Morrissey was, you know, you are the way that Trump talks about my people. Yeah. When people get into that, they get into an oligarchic mindset. Right. You know, my people, you don't talk about my, you know, the people that listen to you or listen to your uh, broadcast. You don't talk about them as hello, my people. No. I and say you've got to be a bit fucked up in the head to, to talk <laughs> like that. You know, that, yes. that, that, that is a product of fucked up thinking. Yes. My people, my people, you are my people. When people have got into that, they've gotten into a state of self-delusion. This is true. That is, uh, that is, uh, is dangerous. So, uh, and now I guess 
I mean, he's, I mean, they're all going to self-destruct. There's something in their nature. If it's not drugs, it'll be something else. You know, it broke my heart. The one that really broke my heart recent, well, re, and I say recently, in the last 10 years, was Prince. Prince's death, really. More so than Bowie, who, who I, you know, who I, I didn't really know. But Bowie and I came, Bowie's Z starter success happened at exactly the same time as my early success began. Yes. So in 1972, so Bowie and I had a lot in common. And so when he died, it was a, it was, oh, wow. It was a, it, it was a shock. But at the same time, I knew that the guy was ill and had been ill for about five years. So it wasn't that much of a surprise when Prince died. It was a, a surprise because the guy was a, extremely healthy, you know, was known to be very healthy. He'd never had any, yes. he was totally, I was genuinely anti-drugs. The guy that I spent time with, very, very anti-drugs. Well, it's interesting because the 80s had four major people, didn't they? They had Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson and Morrissey. And Morrissey, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and when you look at those four, you know, because we look at, you know, you, you started sort of writing in the early 70s and obviously that sort of throwback from the 60s where people were still expecting, you know, like the Beatles to reform and uh, yeah. Sid Barrett to return to Pink Floyd, which obviously that ship had completely sailed. So you'd, you'd sort of picked up quite a period of mad people, like you were saying, all quite extreme, like Captain Beefheart and then people like Brian Wilson. Then we still had the sort of the Fleetwood Mac story and then the Johnny Thunders and all the heroin in New York and that sort of CBGBs and uh, Max's Kansas City kind of scene. But the 80s come along and then, you know, you've got, we got these kind of four quite extraordinary characters and, you know, like I couldn't believe two are dead and two are slightly like you can't recognise Madonna quite so much anymore and, and Morrissey's kind of gone off on one. So it's, it is a kind of the, the fickle world of fame is quite strange really, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's worse than heroin, fame. I mean, it's just more dangerous. It's, more, it's far more, it's more, yeah, it's more, it's way more uh, destructive than the strongest narcotic. I mean, well, perhaps it's, there's this thing, fentanyl now, which is 50 times stronger than heroin, which is a terrifying thought for, as an ex-heroin ex addict. Um, that, that, it's just terrifying. That, that such a drug exists. Yes. I mean, it's, you know, heroin alone kills most people uh, who use it and get addicted to it. And so that something that's 50 times stronger is, is just, just mind-boggling to me. But fame, I would say, is even strong. I mean, that kind of, the, the kind of fame that Madonna particularly um, wanted and got uh, you know, I mean, you know, there's a kind of desperation there. Yes. Also, these people are very lonely. There's incredible. Prince was the loneliest man I've maybe that well, no, one of the loneliest men that I've ever been in the same room with. I mean, the loneliness was palpable. The sense of isolation. The sense of uh, being a freak, uh, a, a freak in like a, a, the Todd Browning sense, as opposed to the Frank Zappa sense, a freak of nature. Yes. Um, but because he was very, very, I mean, he never, I mean, however large his heels were, <laughs> he was still very, he was very, 
he had a great shape and he was a very handsome, you know, he was a great looking guy, but he was also incredibly small and in, had an incredible complex about it. Um, and went to lunatic extremes. You also had a lunatic ego. Both him and Jackson were, were the, 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 it was their egos that were, well, no, no, Jackson was mad. I mean, <laughs> he was all the way mad. Yeah. Michael, I mean, Michael Jackson was a mad person who, who says, well, how am I going to get even more successful than selling 40 million records? Oh, I'll pretend to be mad. <laughs> so I'll go, yeah, he's already mad. So he's, I mean, he's going to even greater extremes, okay? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but but then the 80s were, the 80s were such a hypocritical era, weren't they? The, the yuppie era. It was just so horrible. If you were, if you were an underdog in the 80s, which, which I was very much so, um, there was, it was a horrible time. <laughs> it was, only the Smiths and Prince made it bearable for me. There were a few other prefab sprout. There were there, there were other there were other mu there was other music that I liked. I wasn't completely against the synthesizer, you know, a drum you, machine thing. Um, when you look back at it, do you think sort of five years, like with you know, when I looked at the work of Mick Rock, you think, God, you're really on it there, but then you're not kind of your work doesn't sort of continue in that much into other decades. You're not kind of on that zeitgeist, is it? As a writer, do you were you also feeling like God? I can't still be on. Oh yeah, regularly, regularly. Because yeah, I know, yeah. I know John John Walters, who was the producer of John Peel, said when John Peel hits puberty, you know, we're all in trouble. And somehow he managed to still get excited about that first little twelve seven inch single from a band who could barely play their instruments. But you realise actually to keep that kind of energy and that kind of kind of curiosity is quite hard going, but most of us don't quite do. And I just wondered as a writer, where you're thinking, God, I've, I've interviewed all these people. I can't get excited about this 18 year old band because I've just been with, you know, Brian Wilson. I've just been with, you know, Captain Beefheart. How can I relate to this now band who are starting in 1984, even though they might then produce this amazing body of work? Well, that's why I haven't written anything for the past 13 years on any, on any contemporary act and 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 had to stop i had to stop in the early 80s i just stopped because there was nothing if there's nothing there you can't force it i mean frankly in the late 70s i was writing trash between 19 from 1976 uh, to 1985 i would say my writing was abysmal uh, partly because I was a drug addict during that time and my brain wasn't working at full capacity. Um, but also because I didn't feel in sync with the London or the London based punk movement. I like some of the American stuff that I really like the modern lovers and of course the Stooges. But I didn't like, I just didn't think the clash were that good. And I really didn't like a lot of the, the other groups, even though I was friendly and had sort of played guitar with a lot of these other, you know, I was, a, you know, in the same scene as them. I didn't yeah. like their music. I didn't broadcast it loudly because I didn't want to offend them. But, I, you know, I knew it wasn't going to last long, the punk thing, and it didn't. You know, it was like 
by 1978, everyone was going, it was, you know, the police and all those, you know, everyone <laughs> had had enough of, you know, the three chord rant. Yes. Well, I think, I mean, I, you know, and I, when the, when the new wave thing happened, well, some of it I liked, but I didn't relate to the synth stuff. I just couldn't. So for a number of years, I, you know, I was at odds with it. I mean, in order to, in order to stay, uh, well, not to stay, but in order to have a um, longevity as a, as a writer um, of uh, about rock music, uh, you, well, I mean, you've got to get out of the way when there's something you don't understand. Yes. When rap happened, you you know there were certain people when rap started taking over the scene and hip hop. Some of the rockers were I, I remember were very anti-rap. It was just talking, you know. I'm not interested. That it's just talking. It's not what? singing. You know, it's not really music because it's like, it's just talking. But then those you know those people ended up looking like old idiots. And well, this is and, true. You yeah. know, I mean. So basically, what you have to do is just shut the fuck up and get out of the way. If you don't understand it, just get out of the way of it. And wait until maybe you do understand it. And then maybe you can make some kind of commentary on it. Or wait until there's something comes along that really excites you. As I said, in the, between 1980 and 1984, 85 really, um, there was nothing that really excited me. I was working more as a musician at that time than I was as a writer. Um, but then I heard the Smiths and that brought me, I wanted to write that. There was a mystery in that music that I wanted to address. I wanted to learn. There was a mystery that I wanted to solve. Just like back in the 70s, there was, you know, I loved the music of Brian Wilson. And I grew up with it as a, as a teenager. Classic lonely boy music. And I wanted to find out what had happened to Brian Wilson. And I wanted to happen what happened to Sid Barrett. He was an, I saw Sid Barrett live just before he left for Pink Floyd. And it really marked me. Mm. And you know, in the you know, it's it, it's no different from what's that guy's name. Um, well, I mean, certain writers have topics that they uh, you know, William Faulkner had the swamp and people who inhabit the swamp in the south. That yes. was his topic. My topic was was going to be people like Sid Barrett and Brian Wilson, damaged musical, well, almost geniuses. I'm, I'm very careful about the word genius, but brilliant, brilliant, but ill-fated musicians, yes. shall we say. So did you ever um, sort of, when you've looked back and you thought, you know, you obviously realised you've seen, you know, that pattern is quite obvious. Did you... How, what did you what did you bring as a conclusion to that? Thinking, why did I only find those, those characters so fascinating, not say some of the other people that were around, like I don't know Johnny Thunders or um, I don't know Jesus and the Mary Chain. Talent. Or... Well, it's one word, talent. I mean, for a long time, Iggy Pop is a good example of someone. He was someone who, in the seventies, I thought. I mean, I saw him. As as you know, as did a lot of other people in the in the 
in the American rock critic, you know, uh, world like Lester Bangs, guys like that. They, he was the golden boy of the early seventies. He was the one that was going to deliver. What David Bowie, in fact, ended up doing, we we all expected Iggy Pop to. I yeah. remember when, where David Bowie, when he was launching Ziggy Stardust, they, they, a bunch of American journalists were brought over and, and they watched a, a Ziggy Stardust gig. And I remember talking to all of them and they were, and they, and they were all saying, because Iggy Pop and Lou Reed were being managed by the same guy, Tony DeFries, main man management at that time. But all, and all the journalists were saying, well, like, enough with David Bowie. They, they don't talk about, what's Iggy doing? Well, you know, what's, what's Iggy going to be doing? Is he making a record? Because we really, yeah, Iggy's the one we're waiting for. Yeah. He, was the, he, was the, he was the guy, that, the golden one who was going to turn rock into something wild and dangerous again. And he was going to stab progressive rock in the heart <laughs> and bring back the, the the cardinal virtues of real rock. Yeah. And um, at that time, he had the... Here's another one. He was like Leiden in that he needed musicians. He at least could play guitar a bit. He could play basic chords. He could write a song. He mm -hmm. had... But his idea of songcraft was basically playing two chords over and over again and then launching into a a rant yeah. okay he need he needed someone like well james williamson in the stooges who actually knew song i knew minor chords and yeah you know the whole gamut of music <laughs> and particularly but bowie was the one who really helped jim out but the fact was at the end of the day we picked the wrong guy <laughs> iggy is great and don't get me wrong please don't yeah, but yeah. as but as someone who carries the whole culture? He's not. He's not. The, he doesn't have that musical talent. Bowie had the range. He had like three octave, maybe even I don't know, three and a half octave. He could go from deep way down, like Jim or Iggy, way up. He he could play piano. He could play. He understood songcraft. He understood, he could produce, he could arrange. Lou Reed could play guitar and he could come up with great lyrics. But as a singer, not really. Mm -hmm. he, he was a great vocalist. Iggy and Lou Reed, great vocalists. Mick Jagger is a great vocalist. He's not a great singer. Yeah. David Bowie is a great singer and a great vocalist. So it's all about talent. And when you look at John Lydon, well, <laughs> you know effective vocalist he was an effective he was great he was ideal for the sex he was perfect for the sex pistols you know um but uh it all comes down to talent for me it comes down to talent i mean you know and it, it's always been heartbreaking for me that some of the most talented people that i've seen music musically in the last 50 years haven't got gotten anywhere there was a guy called terry reed i don't know oh. terry you know terry? yes well terry reed had a group in 1970 just before i started writing 1971 
And it was a guy called David Lindley, who's a kind yeah. of Rai Kuda type figure, um, playing uh, lap steel guitar. And he also had a, he had this great rhythm section. And Terry Reid would go out. And Terry Reid was like Jeff Buckley, but frankly, better. If you, <laughs> because he had a better group. Um, and uh, he was just amazing. I used to follow him around like when I was 18, where if he was playing, I'd hitchhike to the gig and stuff. And I remember, you know, one of my, my most treasured memories was, was very timidly going up to him when he, I saw him. He was outside a club gig somewhere in Hampstead in his car and he was rolling a joint and I went up to him very timidly and asked him when his album was going to come out, his new album. That was a, you know, as a fan, that was amazing. I don't forget that stuff. I, that, that stays with me. Yes. The fact that I met the Rolling Stones when I was 12 and I had a very pleasant two minute conversation with Brian Jones. You know, that was a big deal. If Brian Jones had been mean to me, <laughs> I would have been very, very upset, but he was yes. very nice to me. And so, it sort of starts with that. Maybe that that's at the foundation of it. But I wanted to what I wanted to find out what where did this talent come from? Did it come from being fucked up? Did it come from being a, in some way abused when you were younger, or you're bullied, or whatever? Um, in the case of Keith Richards and Iggy Pop, it seemed to me that they were a lot of their talent came from the fact that they were only children. They didn't have any brothers and sisters, so they'd been they'd been spending a lot of time on their own, through you know from from being babies onwards, and so um, they were used to being isolated. Isolation was something was a second nature there, as it is to me, frankly. And I could under I understood that. So I understood why they would get into hard drugs. I understood how they and I also understood how they'd get out of hard, you know, stop taking them. Because when you're a drug addict, the worst thing is the isolation of that of that predicament. And if you're an only child, well, that's second nature. And you yes. can you can you can you can withstand it. You know what I'm saying? And um, so it's, you know, people's personal uh, psyches and their eccentricities and their weirdnesses and their, and it's their personalities and how it, how it works for their, their talent. Brian Wilson, if you look at Brian Wilson, when you look, look at him in 1966, the guy has incredible um, focus. I mean, to make a record like Good Vibrations, to edit it together in 1966, when we don't have, we have none of the uh, technical uh, things where editing is now just, you know, yeah. splicing together. Now it was, uh, it was cutting with a razor blade and a tape. And if you had, you know, Frank Zappa, people like that. It, that kind of expertise, that kind of, I mean, it, it takes real talent to do that. <laughs> Yeah. It took real talent, you know, for George Martin to do what he did with the Beatles. And it took real talent for all of them to do what they were doing because it was it was going on in real time, even though they could do overdubs towards the end of their career. Mm. Um it you know, I mean it, it 
that to me was the mystery. And it's like, I, I need that. I, it's just, you know, if you're obsessed with certain mysteries, how, whether, whether it's as simple as one guitarist saying, how does Jimi Hendrix get that sound? It can be as simple as that. Yeah. Um, you know, how does he get, you know, and uh, you take it from there. But I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think an awful lot of people were drawn by the same, by the same um, things. How, you know, how do they do it? How, do, you know, how, do, how does Bob Dylan write all these lyrics in the 60s? Just this stuff pouring out of him. How did, how, are there enough hours in the day for this guy to write? I mean, Jesus Christ. Does he ever edit? I mean, when does he have the time to edit? Because this stuff is pouring out of him. So, you know, yeah. it's that. It is and nice. to have that talent myself. I mean, you know, it, you know, when I was 20, I thought, well, you know, you, one thinks, well, maybe if I can learn their, um, their routines and their techniques, I will have their same talent. Of course, that's bullshit. Because <laughs> it comes from somewhere, you know, it, it comes from some uh, indefinable Yes. thing ultimately that's the thing you realize but there are things that shape it but the actual talent itself it comes who knows then you know someone would say some would say it comes from god but i'm not gonna uh, <laughs> i'm not gonna go that route you know. no but, uh, but you know what i mean you understand yes. what i'm saying at, at, the, at the very source you keep looking you know like those old blues guys the, those old guys who wrote about the blues and you know they, they were always looking for the source, but the source is in the hearts and souls of men, of the men who actually wrote it. And God knows what was going on. We're talking about something that's not even visible. Soul is not even visible. <laughs> it's, you know, it's palpable, but it's not visible. So, uh, you know, you, you, we're talking in total abstractions here. So, uh, you know, but at the same time, that won't stop us from trying to find a map to find out where this talent springs from, you know. This is true, this is true. Well, look, Nick, thank you ever so much. And thank you for, right. for the amazing work over the, over the decades, really. It's, um, it's gonna be, it's, it's a good one to read. Thank you very much. Oh, I, that's the first time I've seen an actual copy of that, but I, I haven't got a finished copy. That <laughs> is it. Hold on, is it, is it a hardback or, is it hardback or softback? It's very hard. Well, that, that's going to be my first hardback book. Okay. Thanks for showing me that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've seen this. They, they sent me like a, a slick of the sleeve, but because, but because there's such a problem with the post, with the, the pandemic, they've had difficulty sending me a finished copy. That's, hey, Lawrence, there's a book. Yeah, I just saw that. Right? Hardback. Back. <laughs> All right, listen, man. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed that interview. Okay, well, look, thank you as well. This has been amazing. Look, take care. And um, yeah, okay. Cheers. Have a great day. I give uh, uh, you. You're you're a uh, Norwich. Yes, Norwich. How 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 much of a uh, uh, an icon is Alan Partridge? Huge. Yeah, I mean, huge. Yes, it's okay, kind of I'm you sorry. know because they've kind of come to embrace it. You know, so. You know, everyone loves Alan Partridge. Let's face it, Norwich was never a sort of music city, was it? You know, so. Um, well, it's a, name me one group. I was talking to my wife the other night about this, uh, about Norwich, because we're, we're both huge Alan Partridge fans. 
<laughs> and I was saying, is there a group that came out of Norwich? Because I, I was saying, I was saying to her that Norwich is like Swindon. My parents lived in Swindon, so I know Swindon, yes. New Swindon. Well, and, okay, um, the bands, the Farmers Boys, the Higgs and oh Serious Drinking, that was kind of our fame in the 80s. The Not Higgs? Good. Okay. Oh, well. Charlie well, Higson. It didn't, well, it, the, yeah. it didn't really. It's not like a lot of towns and cities where you've got like, wow, you know, that's, that's pretty impressive. It, you know, we've got the clubs and, we, you know, everyone's played around here, but, you know, it doesn't, it just didn't have that kind of the band that made it happen, really. But Alan Partridge is our man, so, and Delia Smith, so obviously. Is it a nice place, though? It, it, it must be. It's, it's it says attractive. Norwich. It says Norwich, welcome to a fine city. And that it's <laughs> what, so what happens with Norwich is that people come to the university here and go, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit sleepy. I'll just do, do my degree for three years and go to London or Bristol or Brighton. That was the cliche. And then they, they have three years, they go three months later, they come back and go, actually, it's really nice, isn't it? Norwich is nice. Yeah, well, it sounds like the kind of place I could retire to, frankly. It's, it's I mean, kind you know, of, so it's it's kind of when you when you get to my age, like a quiet life is is you know in a quiet time with with uh, you know a pastoral setting. That's, yes, know, that's well, important. Well, ten minutes kind of in most directions, you're in the countryside. So it's a very and it's full of churches and full of cobbly streets and it's full of history and you know you're surrounded by this amazing countryside so it's it's a funny one really but it's it is kind of Norwich a fine city is kind of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh great and like this I said once and like I said most people you know they come to university here 20 years ago and thought I'll leave as straight as soon as possible and they they end up living here so that's the cliche oh well there good luck go. Take care. And, uh, and good luck to you. Thanks again, man. Take care, yeah. all right? See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Nick Kent talking about his latest book and much more. His book is titled The Unstable Boys. That's just come out on in hardback. Constable Books. Check it out. It's available from all good bookshops and also online. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, which is nice. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, these have all been archived and you can get those, um, hear those interviews. Lots of bands, lots of artists and all that kind of malarkey musicians. Um, that's available. They're available on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean, C86 Show. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>